Recovery Elevator, episode 453. I hold on to right now. And that, I guess that would be my advice for, for anyone at any length, whether it's 10 minutes or, or 10 days or one day, 10 years, you know, at the end of the day, we, this is, this moment is what we have and I'm sober and I'm happy. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator Podcast. My name is Paul Churchill, and I'm so excited to be here with you today. On today's episode, we have Andy. He's 46 years old from DC and took his last drink on August 12th, 2023. Great job, Andy. I wanna say what's up and thank you to all of our Cafe RE chat hosts. I'm very appreciative and thank you for the amazing job you guys do. Listeners, today is going to be a good day. In fact, it has already been a good day. If you're struggling to quit drinking alone, then I highly recommend our private community, Cafe RE. My wheels found traction when I stopped doing this journey alone. In the long run, I don't think you can do this alone. In Cafe RE, my favorite part are the online chats, and we have about 30 of them a week across all different time zones. We have courses included with membership, and we also have one monthly ukulele chat. Membership is $24 a month, but we always honor what you're comfortable paying, even as low as $1 per month. Link is in the show notes to join and use the promo code OPPORTUNITY to waive the setup fee. Before we get any further, let's hear from a fantastic sponsor, Exact Nature. We are thrilled to partner with Exact Nature because we are committed to the same goal, to help you quit drinking. Exact Nature's safe, all natural CBD-based products can aid your alcohol-free journey. If you struggle with sleep, cravings, mood swings, and high stress levels, learn more about how Exact Nature can help you at exactnature.com. Recovery Elevator listeners will receive 20% off their orders by using the code RE20. That's RE20 at exactnature.com. Okay, let's get started. We are still in the middle of our Q&A podcast series. If you have a question, email it to info at recoveryelevator.com. And today's question comes from Liz in one of our Cafe RE groups. She says, how would you describe a spiritual experience in sobriety? Was it a Bill W. white light or a long series of little twinkles? Somewhere in between, something else altogether? Wow, great question, Liz. Thanks for listening. Now, I love this topic. If you've been in the sobriety world for a minute, gone to some AA meetings, you're going to draw a conclusion that spirituality, spiritual awakenings, a higher power, a power greater than yourself is part of or even a requirement of ditching the booze and healing process. I'll say it again. There is no right or wrong way to quit drinking, but the spirituality component is important because it connects or reconnects you to the universe or a God of your understanding. I've covered on this podcast the order of destruction in an alcohol addiction, which is first spiritual, then mental, then physical. The healing happens in reverse order. The body physically repairs, the mental fog lifts, and then the spiritual healing is the last to occur. This is a rough framework. Is the spiritual component a single event or a series of little twinkles? I love how Liz phrased the question with this series of little twinkles. In terms of spiritual experiences in my own experience, and from what I've heard, it's mostly a series of twinkles, and some twinkles are much brighter than others. Some people do have radical shifts in consciousness or awakenings, such as spiritual teacher Eckhart Tolle. Eckhart Tolle went to bed batshit crazy, and when he woke up, he had transcended his ego. Lucky duck. For most of us, we have to go through an internal dark night of the soul, or hundreds of dark nights of the soul, to prepare ourselves for a spiritual awakening or a radical shift in consciousness. I think this is actually one of the many positive mechanisms of an addiction. It can wake us up. The addiction is the invitation for you to surrender and start rowing your boat gently down the stream. The addiction is the lighthouse shining the way. Now let's take a look at the 12th step of the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. It says, having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to alcoholics and to practice these principles in all our affairs. Now, I'm more interested in the first part of the 12th step. Okay, the timeline is a bit off here with the founder of AA. Bill W. states he saw the light 
in his Manhattan hospital bed in 1934 after an experimental treatment with the medicinal plant belladonna, which can induce intense hallucinations and deliriums. It's not the same as ayahuasca or psilocybin, but it is a plant medicine in a similar psychedelic category. So Bill W. had his spiritual awakening in 1934 and then created the 12 steps of AA in 1935. Bill W. did not numerically complete the steps and then have a spiritual awakening. I say this not to dog Bill W. or AA, but to set more accurate expectations. The steps will for sure make you a more spiritually well-rounded person, but don't tie your spiritual awakening to a sequence of steps or to a future moment. For many, a large twinkle of spirituality took place near the date of your last drink, or maybe on the date of your last drink. Some call this the window of clarity. I've heard it described many times on this podcast as, you know, I just knew it was going to be different this time. Now, big asterisks with the spirituality component. Don't go looking for your spiritual awakening. A man who lived about 2,000 years ago with incredible consciousness said this awakening can come to the sinner before the saint. However, it does seem like pressure or suffering is some sort of prerequisite to undergo this radical shift in consciousness. And do not think that humans are the only species to go through this process. 114 million years ago, the first flower bloomed, or this is the awakening of the plant species. Certain rocks go through such an intense process that their carbon molecules rearrange and they transform into highly sought after diamonds and gems. This spiritual experience is not exclusive to humans. In fact, there is another spiritual theory that we are one of the last species to join the party in terms of awakening. That is that the birds, trees, and deer have already gone through this process. I don't know. Human beings did kill 100 million of its own kind in the last century, and we've got somewhat of a nuclear tinderbox in the northeast of Europe at the moment. So, an awakening for humans, as spiritual teacher Eckhart Tolle says, is of the greatest importance or we perish. When I first quit drinking, I could barely spell spirituality. It wasn't time for me to explore that branch. But I do remember going on a hike with some friends around my nine-month mark. I was sitting in the snow alone, waiting for them to return to the parking lot, and I heard the wind blow through the tall Montana pines. I remember feeling a tremendous amount of peace. I felt connected. Now, I didn't begin levitating, but for me, it was definitely a twinkle of spirituality. Today, I feel I have spiritual moments daily. 20th century Swiss psychiatrist Carl Jung calls these synchronicities or these spiritual twinkles the breadcrumbs of life. Now, when I was drinking, there were no breadcrumbs. There were no synchronicities. I hesitate to answer the question exactly as Liz asked it, which is how would you describe yours and mine spiritual experience in recovery? Because my experiences are going to be 100% different than yours. And as we covered last week, I don't want you all to compare your spiritual moments, your twinkles with mine. But I do love this stuff, so I'll share a couple quick ones. I'm very blessed. And a couple of years ago, I bought a house in Costa Rica. I remember getting back into the car with my realtor after having toured the property. He said, you know what? You are the second person I've showed this house to. The other person last week, when we got into this car, they said, yeah, this place looks great. It has everything that I'm looking for. And then at that exact moment, a boa constrictor falls out of the tree onto the windshield of the car. And this person says, oh, hang on a second a little too wild for me. I was the next person to come see the house and I said, I'll take it. On April 19th, 2018, I had an incredibly spiritual moment with howler monkeys in Costa Rica at an ayahuasca retreat. I'm gonna cover ayahuasca and plant medicines next week as that is another question from a listener. Okay, when I first arrived at the house I purchased in Costa Rica, I thought there was gonna be a full welcoming committee of howler monkeys but no monkeys were present. <laughs> so it was day three and all kinds of things were breaking. The well water suddenly turned brown and I couldn't even get the internet to work. I was having major feelings of doubt about the whole project. I recall going outside and sitting in a chair. My head was in my hands. I was about to cry. Again, I thought the monkeys would have already made an appearance. I said in an audible voice, and where the hell are the? And before I could even say monkey, I saw a lone howler monkey staring at me from a tree about 20 yards away. 
right when I saw his eyes beaming right back at me, I knew everything was going to be okay. The nervous system immediately calmed down. And side note, I've never seen a howler monkey alone. They're always in packs because they're pack animals. So my advice for this whole topic of spirituality is to be open. That's all we can be open from what shows up and open from what is presented by the universe. Thank you, Liz, for the question. I hope this helps. We've got three more weeks of questions lined up. Thank you so much for listening. And now a word from our sponsor, BetterHelp, before we hear from Andy. One of the things that I was really struggling in early recovery is the thought that I should be doing better. I used to think that I shouldn't be having bad feelings. I shouldn't be having bad thoughts. I was questioning myself all the time, and it really was affecting my self-esteem. I heard somewhere that bad days are part of a good life, and that really stuck. Sometimes I need an external reminder that I am doing okay. Progress is slow and steady, and we can't always be our best selves. So therapy has really helped me to just be gentle, be caring to myself, and keep going. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. BetterHelp is entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get a break from your thoughts with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com Elevator today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Elevator. Andy, how are you? Doing well. How are you? Yeah, good. Thank you, Andy. I'm glad to be here with you. I'm excited to hear your story into alcohol addiction and out of it. Let's get right to it, Andy. When was your last drink? Uh, it was... Last Saturday, August 12th at about 10 p.m. All right. Now, listeners, this podcast episode is scheduled to come out late October. But at the time of recording, we got five days in the bag, Andy, which is phenomenal. Great job. Listeners, before we hit record, Andy was telling me about a five-year AF streak. Right now, he's got five days away from alcohol. So you, you know there was drinking uh, relapse there. And I track with that. I went two and a half years away from alcohol, and then I went back to it. Uh, did I ever go off my path? Yeah, sometimes the thinking mind says so, but I had to go back and learn those lessons. So Andy, I cannot wait to hear your story. But before we get there, give listeners a little background about yourself, where you're from, what you do for a living, your age, do you have a family, and what do you like to do for fun? Sure, thanks. Um, I'm originally from Superior, Wisconsin. It's a small town up in northern Wisconsin by Duluth, Minnesota. I moved around a little bit as an adult after college for the military. Uh, I currently live in Washington, D.C., just outside Northern Virginia. I'm a military officer. I've been in for about 26 years. I'm married to a wonderful woman. Uh, we've been married for 10 years-ish, just a little over 10 years. Um, I have four kids. I have three kids in college, and I have a four-year-old little boy at home, which has been fantastic. And for fun, I run ultra marathons. I love the garden around the house and just family time. And, and we do a lot of traveling too, as much as we can. So life is pretty good. Did I hear you have three kids, three kids in college and a four-year-old at home? Yeah. My goodness. All right. <laughs> I did yeah. get that right. Um, and listeners, we're on Zoom. We can see each other. You guys can't, but we both have the same quote, which is Man in the Ring by Teddy Roosevelt. What does that mean to you? Just just tell listeners what that is and what that quote means to you. You know, it 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 means a lot. I mean, life is interesting. I think everyone has a story and I think people need to be um, compassionate about what people have gone through or haven't gone through. And I like quiet, humble attributes. I try and have those in myself and I seek those out from others. And I don't know, it's just a combination. I just, I really like um, the quote because it makes you think about uh, your place amongst others based on everyone's experiences. I love it, Andy. And for me, it, it, in that quote, he says, really, failure, it doesn't matter, right? You're in the ring. You stepping into the ring is enough, right? To put yourself in the circumstances for criticism and whatnot. 
um, that's enough. You took a shot, you took a chance, but I think everybody who signs up for human life, if you're on planet earth and alive right now, you're in the ring. It just depends on, you know, at what capacity. Um, and Andy, I see an airplane behind you before we hit record. You're telling me about the, the airplanes you flew in the military. What is it like flying a military jet? You said they were like low level combat missions. Uh, well, I don't need, I mean, I don't know the terminology, but what's it like flying a jet like that? Oh, it's amazing. Um, I, I was fortunate to fly C-130. So it was uh, a crew aircraft or we had four people up in the cockpit doing different jobs and two people in the back. And, and it was great. So we had that teamwork aspect of it internally, which was really cool, first of all. And then the missions were were really cool. We flew, like you said, it was low level missions in theater. So in the combat area, we could do anything from airdrop supplies down to troops that needed it. We could land on a dirt strip and take off and pick up people for medical evacuation. So it was a very versatile aircraft and, and it was great. And just flying itself. I mean, that was a lifelong dream. I wanted to fly for the air force and um, you know, there's something special for me to be, be in the sky. So uh, to be able to do that was, was really special. Heck yeah. Thanks for your service. And, and Andy, when you got back to the base, did you ever get out of the airplane and go, holy shit, there's a bunch of holes in the wing? Um, yes, <laughs> we, you know, yeah, it's a, it's a, you put yourself in pretty, pretty unique situations. there, vulnerable. Um, when you're, when you're landing and taking off in the middle of a, you know, random city in Afghanistan and, uh, yeah, but again, the, we, we were professionals. We knew how to deal with that stuff and it wasn't, uh, it was never a shock. So Gotcha. And you said traveling. What's next up on for travel? Uh, next week, actually, heading to Croatia. Um, I have background with Croatia. I worked at the embassy in Croatia for three years, about a decade ago. My wife is from Croatia. We go there every summer, late summer for vacation. We spend some time with family and then we rent a, rent a house on the uh, Adriatic Ocean. And I do a lot of trail running there on that vacation. And it's, it's a, a wonderful country, beautiful people, beautiful place to be. Yeah, I know it's red and white are the colors there. Uh, their World Cup team, several World Cups ago, yeah. was incredible. Uh, did you meet your wife in Croatia? I did. Yep. Yeah, we met at a. I was running an ultra marathon. Uh, it was a twelve hour. You would do this loop, only like a mile and a half loop, as many times as you could in twelve hours, and and we ended up meeting there, and that was it. How many loops? I don't remember the number of loops. I was on a team of uh, two people, so we we were able to do a team. Um, we ran a lot. I mean, we ran, I think 120 or 130 miles combined that, that day. So, wow. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Andy, let's get into this with alcohol. Maybe I'm going to let you start where you want. Maybe your first drink, maybe when it ramped up, maybe when you first recognized alcohol was no longer serving you and throw in, if you tried to moderate, if you drew those lines in the sand that eventually you crossed, let's go for it. Yeah. Pretty much all the above. So I, uh, like I said, I grew up in Northern Wisconsin, a, a pretty small, but tight community, a lot of drinking, a lot of, I mean, there's more bars up there per capita, I guess, than anywhere else in the country. Everyone, you know, there's drinking all the time. So it was never like a shock to see a, a beers or, or people doing anything. My parents both drank a lot. I don't know if they were technically alcoholics. I do think it contributed to my dad's death. Um, but again, that doesn't matter anymore but they were like my parents had they always had a they never let their case of special export go empty in the house we had they were out there was always beer in the house um i would get my parents beer you know on friday nights and whatever and and i would you know i stole sips once in a while from you know and they knew but it so it just wasn't an issue but it, i think it ingrained um you know in me that it has to be involved if it's good day bad day whatever there was always drinking so my first real drink uh, was, I think, in 1991. I was in eighth grade, and my dad and a bunch of his buddies—they all had sons my age, and we were all buddies too. We would go up to the Boundary Waters in northern Minnesota for a fishing trip. Beautiful place. You'd have to drive up, and then you'd port it. You'd canoe and portage around these beautiful lakes, and it, and then you'd camp and fish for for four or five nights. It was it was unbelievable. That year, and our parents were very like meticulous at packing because the weather in May in northern Minnesota, you don't know what's going to happen. That year, the day we left, it was beautiful weather. The dads were busy and they didn't pack as meticulously as they should have as far as covering stuff up and whatever when we're driving. 
And uh, we headed up and it went from 75 degrees and sunny to like rain, sleet, snow, blowing sideways by the time we got to where we needed to go. And then we still had to canoe and portage, you know, for another six, seven hours. And it was miserable. I mean, the weather was just awful. And it would, you know, it was my dad and me in one canoe with bogged down with all kinds of stuff. And I didn't know what I was doing. And it, it was just, it was a lot of work. So we ultimately got to camp and we, we got our tent set up. Everything was wet and soaking. But at the end of the day, we had a fire, we had cover, we had some food. And our, the dads were all drinking. They brought a lot of booze up. And at one point, my dad's or my best friend's dad, he had a big bottle of um, like Blue 100 or peppermint schnapps or something. And he gave he gave it to me first. And he said he said something like all the kids, you know, he said, here, Andy, take the first sip. It'll take the edge off because we were freezing miserable. And I took a sip and I thought it was awesome. It, it did take the edge off and it felt great. The bottle went around and then it they stashed it next to someone's seat or whatever. And that was sort of it. But even that, like when that, when the person sitting next to where they stashed it got up to go do something, I finagled my way to sit there. And I, I started sipping on that bottle and both sneaking it. And a couple of times my dad would see and, you know, whatever, but I got, I got completely drunk. I mean, I drank a whole bunch of that bottle and to the point where the dads were shocked. And, and I remember I thought it felt great. And I remember feeling drunk and I thought it was awesome. And I, I remember slurring my words and, you know, laughing about it and everything else. And that was the first time I got drunk, but I, it was amazing because, you know, that's how I drank for the rest of my life. I, you know, that first sip, it was awesome. Let's keep going till the bottle's empty. And, uh, you know, the next day I, I didn't feel hungover, sick or nothing bad happened. And I didn't, want to have booze again that day or anything it was it happened it happened and it was over um and uh you know ninth grade through 12th grade was was great times i drank i was also captain of the hockey team captain of the football team straight a student homecoming king you know i was all these things and i drank a lot though too on the weekends and whenever we could sneak it and our town was sort of like I don't know if you've watched Dazed and Confused, the movie, when, when you know, you sort of every every week, weekend night, you drive around and go to the local, you know, A&W and see where people were and who was going to steal beer and where the kid would be at. And you'd end up at the keg. And I sort of prided myself in the fact that, yes, I was this all-American guy and my friends and girls and guys, we all sort of drank, but I'd like to go sneak away and hang out with the the bad kids, the, you know, the I don't know why. I think part of it was I just wanted a lot of those people from every angle to like me or accept me. But um, but yeah, I, I really like to do it. I got away with a lot of stuff, but again, no no repercussions really. It, it, you know, I I didn't feel awful even if I got sick at a, you know after a night of drinking it, the next morning I'd be fine and and I I was still doing all the right things. You know, I was again never got busted. I never got in trouble at school for it, and I was winning <laughs> on and off the field, and you know just didn't have any issues. So um, it was it was interesting times back then. Gotcha. And then in your twenties and thirties, it, it, it ramped up. Did it become problematic then? Yep, I think so. I graduated high school in 1995, and from that time until 2001, a lot of things happened. Um, First, because of sports, primarily, I had a lot of opportunities to go do different, you know, I could have played college football, actually did for a little bit. And then I played two years of junior A hockey in the United States Hockey League, bounced back, went to college to play hockey. As all this was happening, I I continued to drink uh, with friends and party harder than I probably should have. And looking back, I probably would have had more success athletically had I not been doing those things. At one point, at one point, I don't remember what year it was. I was still uh, single in, in college time frame. I remember talking to my mom because I w- and I said something like, I need to slow down or something. I, I don't remember. I remember the conversation, like visualizing it, but I, I think I had been, you know, it was summertime and I think I was bartending and every night was bartend, drink, stay up late sleep all day, do the same thing over and over. And I was probably doing, you know, silly things and messing with girls and whatever. I just wasn't 
happy with how it was was going. And I remember having that conversation with her briefly and and she sort of blew it off like, well, you just slow down, you know, <laughs> just just slow down. And but it's interesting to look back because I I vividly remember thinking, okay, I have something going on here. And I was pretty young at the time. But as that progressed, again, nothing bad. I finished college. I'd gone to basic training, enlisted for the guard, and then I got commissioned as an officer and was selected to go to flight school. I won't get into the whole details of it, but I, I got married and adopted my my oldest daughter. She's 24 now at a very young age. So a lot of things happened and I wanted to be successful. I wanted to fly airplanes. I wanted to be this perfect person, all of a sudden dad, family, this type of stuff. And even, yeah, in, in at that time, I started becoming a, a daily drinker. Um, I don't know how much I was drinking. It wasn't, I didn't need to drink in the mornings or during the day at that point. That didn't happen for quite a while, but but I, I knew I was drinking more than the, the average person. So I, when I finished flight school, all the training came back. That was around the 2002 timeframe. So from 2002 to 2010 was again, busy. Um, I had two more kids and we were in the middle of, you know, Afghanistan and we were deploying a lot. And I was explaining to you earlier, I didn't realize it at the time, but I was drinking alcoholically. I didn't know. And I didn't think I was an alcoholic because I had the, I had the mindset that I didn't, you know. I had a house. I was successful. I didn't get a DUI, wasn't homeless, all those things. But I realized I was consistently relapsing for almost a decade because I drank alcoholically. And then our deployments with the military for the Air Force, at least, were fa- fairly short, you know, two, three months at most. Then we come home for six months and we do it again. So a couple times a year, you'd be gone. And I would drink alcoholically to a certain level before my deployment and really ramp it up before I would deploy. And as I deployed, I, I didn't go through withdrawals or anything like that because, again, unknowingly, I could self-medicate. We had what was called like go-no-go pills. They were pills to basically get you on sleep cycle. So if your missions were at night, you could take pills to keep you awake and vice versa. And I think I self-medicated on being able to sleep sleep off you know, my alcohol for the first couple of days, and then I was... Um, so active and flying and all kinds of other things going on in my brain because of that, I didn't really worry about alcohol. I'd be sober for two months, three months, come home, and then I would just be the war hero who had the ability to drink as much as I wanted. No one could say anything to me. But the level I left off at just got picked up to the next level. So it was, it's uh, interesting. Andy, I want to expand on that for a second. Before we hit record, you, you covered this briefly, but you said, for about a decade, I didn't know I was an alcoholic. Similar to what you just said, you were drinking alcoholically for a long time without knowing it. This is a classic trait of an addiction. I can guarantee you, many listeners right now are listening. They're like, am I an alcoholic? I'm not. Do I have a drinking problem? Do I not? But once you decide, you're going to get this clear vision and looking back, you'd be like, oh, wait a second. Not only am I am I an alcoholic, I had a drinking problem 10 years or five years or even 15 years before that. So Andy just dropped a major value bomb right there is, you know, this addiction is way further than you think. All right. So you're coming back from emissions. You're the war hero that's drinking. Um, you know, maybe PTSD is part of that. You know, we all hear about that in the military. Mm-hmm. Uh, keep going, Andy. Yeah. Um, again, my whole drinking career, whether it was when I was younger as an adult had nothing to do, you know, I'm never, I'm, I wasn't a victim of anything, you know, as far as wanting to drink, um, in my PTSD, if you will, was the fact that I missed it. I like to go there. And mm-hmm. that's one thing that hurt me when I came home. The two aspects of coming home were I missed being there. I missed being in, you know, with my brothers and sisters in arms, um, but simultaneously, I felt bad because I didn't, I missed them more than I wanted to be maybe with my family at the time. Wow. Even though I loved them more than anything. And I was, you know, my kids were in the world to me, um, but it was a conflicting place to be. Uh, so I tried, you know, I, I did what I could. Um, yeah. And then I was also, yeah, it, it was, it was an interesting time. Um, I, I don't know what else to say about that. <laughs> Andy, you're doing great. You had the conversation with your mom. Say, hey, look, things. This is getting out of hand. Scale back. There's the decade of the flight missions. You know, when does it really get to be the writing on the wall? All right, this has got to go. Yeah, 2010. I had 
had an opportunity to uh, go to and work at the embassy in Croatia. And just to back up a little bit too, I don't want to go into huge details. I, as I said, I was married at the time. The, that marriage probably happened for, for not the right reasons, but again, we were together for a long time, um, had, you know, three kids total. It was, that marriage was, was falling apart. Like I think she was an alcoholic um, and, and we just weren't, supposed to have been together really. So it was tough, but we had the opportunity to go to Croatia for three years and we went, so we got there and it was a, I'll just stick to more of the drinking side of it. There, it was an opportunity. You're in a new country, all kinds of things going on. It was awesome. And embassy life, there's a lot of daily, there's socials and dinners and from with all these people. And I was able to drink a lot and I knew I didn't want to be married. I knew we were living separate lives. Um, so for those two years, it was a lot of partying, a lot of not really being connected to anything other than work, my kids and my booze. And when that two years, two and a half years was ending, um, you know, my, my marriage was over and I wasn't as concerned with that specifically other than the dynamics of how do you, how do you manage this now with kids and everything else. And, and I didn't meet my new wife too. And I was trying to, and I didn't want to go back. I wanted to stay there because I loved the work. I loved the atmosphere. I loved everything about it. And all those things combined, I was, I was just out of control drinking. I mean, it was, it was ugly. It was, it was, uh, you know, I needed to drink 24 seven if I wanted to feel normal. I couldn't, I still could polish myself up and be fine throughout the day, but it got really bad. So 2012, uh, that fall is when I came back to the U.S. I was basically a single dad. Their mom left and did her thing. My girlfriend, who's now my wife, was in Croatia. We're trying to figure out how to get her to come here. I miss being in Croatia. I still had to go fly. And, you know, I went back to flying. We were in Minnesota at the time. And... A lot, you know, I was drinking all the time. I was, I was being very cheap at work. I, I wasn't doing the job. I was calling in sick, blaming it on the fact that I'm a single dad, um, which was true. I mean, I had a lot of stuff going on, but I would use every excuse in the world to stay home and, and drink, drink until I passed out, get up, clean up and start drinking and pretending like I was a normal drinker in the evenings. And um, I was, but like I said, I was still doing like the parenting and, and doing the things that needed to be done, but I could feel everything just sort of slipping away, including my own health and mental state. My, my wife now, she did come back or she came to the U S uh, and we got married in 2013. All those same things were happening, you know, drinking all the time, trying to juggle so many things. I didn't want to say I was an alcoholic. My wife she was concerned and she called me out on it multiple times and I just didn't want to hear it. I wanted to make sure I, I wanted to do it under my own control, you know, fix it myself type of thing. I didn't want to go to AA. I thought that was for um, homeless people, people who lost everything and needed a place to get a shower, you know, in, in smoke. I didn't know what AA was, but I didn't want anything to do with it. I just thought, you know, I would stop and and I did, I, you know, I, or I didn't, I, but I, you know, it was one of those things that you hear a lot every morning I'd wake up just awful, you know, I, well, first I'd wake up at three in the morning going through withdrawals, not knowing it really, but just this awful and beating doom, you know, and, and anxiety and just scary, scary thoughts. And it was just awful. Um, and I would wake up and say, I'm not gonna, I wouldn't say I'm not going to drink. I would be like, okay, I'm going to have, six beers tonight, tomorrow I'll have three or what I was going to wean myself off of it. And I would have sworn on my kids' lives, my everything in the world that that was going to be the case, but I couldn't do that. As soon as I drank a beer or anything, it was, I was off to the races. So that, that happened for a couple of years. My wife was concerned. I was concerned. I thought I was going to lose my wife, lose my job type of thing. And I ended up, um, it was an interesting day. I, my wife is a, uh, airline stewardess flight attendant. So when she's gone, she's gone. And it was one day she was out, out, out to work or, you know, out of town for work. I was driving to work in, 
I was going, you know, I felt awful. It was a Monday and I was just like anxiety. I thought I was going to have a heart attack. I was in traffic and I got, I just, I was freaking out. I thought I was probably having a panic attack. I'm assuming I was in stuck in traffic and I don't remember it happening, but I had gotten myself out of traffic onto a off ramp and I was at a light and I sort of came to And when that light was going to turn green, I could either go straight and get back on the ramp and get back on the highway and go to work, or I could take a left and go home, which I had done many times because I just needed to go home and drink to feel normal. That day, I just thought something had to happen. So I, I turned left when the light changed. I went to the liquor store. I bought beer, went home, started drinking, and I called my one of my best buddies who I worked with, um, and I said, dude, I'm completely screwed. I said, I'm, I'm, I'm going to something's happening. I need help. Will you help me? Will you talk to people at work and just let them know I need to figure this out? And he was like, yep, you're, you know, and I called, uh, I called rehab places and said, I, you know, what do I do? How do I do this? And I ended up going to Hazelden. Uh, I had to wait four or five days before I could get a bed there, but I called my wife, called all my, you know, people at work and said, Hey, this is what I'm doing. So for the next few days, I just sort of drank and, um, until I could get there and get medically detox. I was real scared about stopping drinking um, and going through whatever would go on. Andy, incredible stuff. And, and I definitely want to unpack the five years alcohol-free. I know you drank last Christmas or Christmas uh, was after the five years, the the relapse yeah. day. But really quick, comment on what was it like when you called your buddy and said, hey, I'm screwed. Like, I need help. Was it a relief or was it like, oh, shit, this gig is up. Now I've got a whirlwind of wreckage to deal with. No, it was a huge relief. I I can't explain that feeling, but it was awesome. Um, it was hard to do it. And I it was like an out-of-body experience to spit those words out when he answered the phone. But as soon as it happened, it it was it was awesome. Yeah. Okay. So Hazleton in 2015. And I I think you said you drank after that, but, and then you got five years alcohol free. Uh, Walk us through that process. Yeah. um, I won't go into details. I mean, Hazleton was great. Uh, I, at the time I didn't, when I got out of Hazleton, I thought I was going to stay sober without any help. I I figured I read all the books. I know everything. I'm fine being sober. Uh, Long story short, I, I wanted to go drink like a gentleman on my birthday a couple months later by myself. I bought a six pack. I was going to drink two that night and save the other four for throughout the week. I drank that six pack in probably 10 minutes and was back at the store. And then it was off to the races again for another, um, yeah, year and a half or so. We, in that time frame, um, I would, I would go, I would try and stop and couldn't, I'd have two days, three days here and there. I got to, uh, we moved to Washington, D.C. at the same time, and I, I did have two months in D.C. by myself, which was a shit show, if you will, because um, I had to move in the fall for work. My wife and kids stayed in Minnesota until Christmas time, and it was, um, it, it was bad. You know, it was, I would go to work and do my thing and be fine, but I'd pull down the shades and watch stupid YouTube and Netflix things and just drink because I could, because I was by myself. Um so I got sober uh, November seventh of two thousand or yeah two thousand seventeen. How that happened? It wasn't planned. Um, I was drinking. I I went to work one day. I was at the Pentagon actually, and I I actually thought I had a strep throat. I really had a bad sore throat. So I was going to go to the clinic at the Pentagon and say, hey, you know, I just want to get a strep test. That's it. As I'm going there, I'm going through, you know, I'm withdrawing from alcohol from the night before. I feel like crap for that too. So I was like, okay, my, my heart rate's going to be flying. My, my blood pressure is going to be through the roof. I came up with all the excuses to the doctor. Oh, I had a stressful morning. I, I had a little tobacco and a bunch of coffee or whatever, you know, and sure enough, I get there, blood pressures, you know, death and <laughs> heart rate's terrible. I'm sweaty. Uh, the nurse looked at me like, are you, what else, any other pains? And I was like, no, I'm fine. Just, you know, the doctor walked into the door and same thing, like with my buddy, I don't know. It was like an out of body experience. She looked at me and I said, I, I need some, I need some help. I said, I'm, I've been trying to recover from alcohol for years. I can't. And I, yeah, I have a sore throat, but I need something else. And she literally gave me a hug. She's like, all right, we'll figure it out. And and it was awesome. She, she, um, you know, we talked through some stuff. We came up with a plan, you know, moving forward. She was able to give me 
if I, pro- I promised her I wouldn't drink if, she, and then she said, you know, I, you know, she, I can't, she gave me like two days worth of some type of, you know, a, a Librium or something to get myself, you know, so I wouldn't go through any withdrawals. And I was, I was all in. So I, I did that. I felt great explaining, you know, saying it again. And I went to an AA meeting, I think that night, and then I got sober, you know, with AA and my wife was awesome too. So there's a club by our house that we, I would go to AA club. And I don't know, it was, I was just, I just finally just shut up and stopped fighting the fact, you know, I was always like, well, why can't I just have a beer when, you know, my, at a funeral or at a wedding or all these things. And finally I was able to just, I guess, be at peace with the fact that I'm a full-blown alcoholic and I need to just go through whatever process it is to stay sober. So I had a great experience. I um, wasn't even planned. I, I didn't have a sponsor immediately, but I, mean, I went to the AA meetings every day. My wife went to an Al-Anon meeting. She didn't like it at all. Um, so she ended up coming to a lot of open meetings with me almost daily too. And it was great for her. She got to hear other stories and realize it wasn't just me. And yeah, I would say the experience there was good. I had a sponsor. The first two, yeah, the first six months, I really got into that pink cloud pretty soon. And I think it was because I was calm. I wasn't questioning things. My sponsor was really patient and we were really slowly went through uh, the first three steps. It wasn't like, Hey, write this down and say this prayer and we'll be done at, you know, go on to the next step. It was, he was very patient. And I, that was just a really uh, beautiful experience for me, I guess, if you will, those, you know, going through it that way. I, I completed a fourth step and a fifth step with my sponsor, but then he had some life events happen. And I don't, you know, again, this is four years before I relapsed, but I really, technically I didn't finish the steps. So I did the work up until step five. And then, uh, he, he couldn't be my sponsor anymore, but I was just, I was fine. I was going to meetings. I liked my sobriety. I wasn't one who stood up on the you know, real often announced to everyone, I'm an alcoholic, but I love life now. But I talked to people about it. I was very transparent with whoever. And, uh, you know, life was good. My my wife had a, we had our little boy. We had a lot of things. I had success at work. Uh, it was just, it was awesome. And so I, I, I had lost that obsession they talk about. I wasn't bitter about being an alcoholic. I actually embraced it, I think. And it made me better in a lot of other aspects of life. And yeah, it was uh, it was a good experience. Andy, it sounds like there was an acceptance. You know, whatever you call this, alcoholic, alcoholism, this is what it is. This is what I have to do. It sounds like AA was a big part uh, of your story, sponsored steps, whether you finished it or not. That's still a lot of work. Mm-hmm. And talk to us about Christmas, uh, about Christmas Day, five years after that date, your sobriety date in November. Yeah. So this past Christmas, again, sort of like when I got sober on that November was this this past Christmas. Yep. Okay. Um, similar to when I got sober on, on in the 2017, I didn't plan to drink that day. Um, my parents were in town. We had family in town for the holidays and throughout my sobriety, I would occasionally on, I would drink and I, you know, I'm a proponent or I'm not against non-alcoholic beer. So I had, um, a brand of non-alcoholic beer, uh, Brooklyn from Brooklyn brewery. They made great beer and, that's, that was my, my drink of choice, an aid drink. Christmas Eve, my mom and wife went shopping and running errands. And they called at one point and said, Hey, do you need anything from Whole Foods? We're blah, 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 blah. And I said, yeah, I'll take some, you know, why don't you grab some of that NA Brooklyn, blah, blah, blah beer. So they did. And there, the, Brooklyn had different flavors in. So they came home with a 12 pack of Brooklyn beer and I didn't, you know, whatever we put in the fridge, this and that. I went to go get one that afternoon when people started eating and, and drinking around the house and I opened it up. I didn't even look. I realized it looked like the packaging was a little different color, but I was like, oh, maybe another flavor. I took a sip and I was by myself in the kitchen. I remember I took a sip before I was going to put it in my glass. I'm like, holy cup, this is alcohol. And for probably 30 seconds, I stood there and I'm like, either I'm going to tell my wife that this is alcohol and I'm not going to drink it. Or I'm going to put it in the glass and drink it and just, I don't know. And I just kept drinking it. And so for a day or two, I was hiding it. You know, I was drinking it, putting it in a glass and thinking to myself, well, 
tastes good. <laughs> and I did want to drink faster and drink more of it, but I was cautious not to. And I, um, and I had an alibi. It was, you know, if, if, if I would have smelt like alcohol, I'd say, well, it's this new flavor. Or if I was busting, they saw it said 6% on the side. I'd say, holy cow, I didn't know it was Brooklyn and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. You and me both. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I, I, for a few days, I drank sort of gentlemanly, but I was within, within five days, I was off to the races again. I was buying that beer. Everyone in the house, well, my wife thought it was non-alcoholic, but I was, I was drinking it to get drunk. Within and, five days. And I've had personal experience with this. I hear it on the, on the, on the podcast so many times you pick up right where you left off within a, a, a short duration of time. Now, Andy, when you ramped up again, was there a voice saying like, Hey, we just did five years, not a problem. We're going to get right back on it. Yes. And again, I would have. I would have sworn on anyone's life that when I woke up those mornings and said, all right, those five years, I had five years. I don't need alcohol. I'm not going to drink today. I couldn't, I couldn't not, could not, not drink. <laughs> yeah. You know, it got back to that right away. And it got again, within five days, I was drinking like I wanted to, um, within a week or a couple of weeks, I was back to keeping those Brooklyn beers in my kitchen, but hiding other things around the house. And, and I was, I was drinking like I was full-blown alcoholic again. I was hiding, I was drinking uh, behind the scenes and then, uh, you know, yeah, got right back into the cycle. Would it be safe to say that 2023 has been, you know, just trying to get back to the sobriety. We're on day five right now, which yeah. is incredible. I had a quote, uh, uh, maybe five, 10 episodes ago where a guy had 40 years and he had like a mic drop speech. He was like, day one is harder than day two. Day two is harder than day seven. Day seven is harder than one year. One year is harder than 40. You get the point there. Mm -hmm. Um, so day five, my point there, Andy, congratulations on day five. Um, I don't like the word only in this journey, incredible stuff. Um, in 2023, if you had stretches of like 30, 40 days longer than day five, or is, are we on, are we, or are we in uncharted waters right now? No, um, I've, I think the longest I've gone is maybe two weeks. It seems like around the 10, 10 day mark has when has been when I've, I've looked at opportunities to drink and, and taken them. I don't know why. Um, typically when I've gone back to drinking, I've had a lot of day ones in two days and that was about it. And usually it's ironic that, or not ironic, but I, the days I started drinking again, it was because it was a good day. Like even today, I had a pretty light day at work. I took care of a couple things. I felt really nice. It's a beautiful day. I have nothing to complain about. I mean, life is good. And I've had thoughts like, God, it'd be great to sit on the porch. You know, it's just like, but I know how effed up it is if I sit on the porch. I know what's going to happen. Yeah, it's just, it's so mind boggling that I know how awful it is, yet it sounds so good, you know, and that's really scary. It's really, really scary. So yeah, I, I don't know what happened here in the last five days. I think the biggest thing was I had a conversation with my wife and she was mad. I mean, she knew I was drinking again and, and however supportive she is, um, you know, it hurts. It's It hurts her. It hurts me to see her hurt. But I think the biggest thing was being honest with her uh, and then and then starting to have some communication with other alcoholics again instead of just trying to stop because I wanted to stop throughout the last six months or seven months and just say okay forget about it pretend that didn't happen pick up where I was you know when I was five years sober that's not going to work you know I want to look at I look at my five years is a great experience and it's still part of my recovery um, that's one reason why I've I haven't gone back to AA yet and I will. I'm not, I'm a huge proponent of AA, but there are certain things that, you know, I'm not comfortable with going there. And part of it is I, a lot of times I've heard at least the groups I've been around with, they'll sort of say, well, forget about those five years. You screwed yourself and now you're, you're a day one newbie. And I disagree. I think, you know, I learned a lot in five years. This relapse is scary. Um, and it's, it's just part of my process now. Uh, so I, I, I don't know what, what's different this five days than, you know, when I had four or five days a month earlier, two months earlier, but 
that calmness in, in acceptance of the reality has come back to me. Like I feel that again for the first time. Andy, I was, I was going to ask, you know, what have you learned about yourself in these last eight months um, after the five years alcohol free, because you're on the pathway towards healing and wholeness, but you're going to learn resilience. You're going to learn more yeah. about yourself. You're going to get connected with yourself and acceptance of level 10. Yeah. 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 I mean, Ultimately, I I learned that I miss myself being sober. Um, the way I was, the 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 calmness, uh, the sense of serenity, the way I treated others, how I handled day to day things. I I I like that as a sober person, and I saw that slipping away really fast in the last seven months, and it's it's uh, scary, you know. I, I, I unfortunately like the way it feel, makes drinks make me feel at the beginning of the session, but um, it's still not as good as how it feels when you're consistently sober. And I just really want to get back to that. So I'm not real big on counting days. I guess right now, the reality, I, I'm just holding on to, I hold on to right now. And that, I guess that would be my advice for for anyone at any length, whether it's 10 minutes or, or 10 days or one day. 10 years, you know, at the end of the day, we, this is, this moment is what we have and I'm sober and I'm happy. So that's great. You know, and then I'm just going to go with that for now. And, and like I said, I need to talk to more people and, and stay connected and, and uh, be honest with myself. Yeah. Quantum science does throw a wrench in our sobriety clock as in time is a figment of the imagination. All we have is now. Right. right. So what a beautiful moment, Andy, you and I are having right now. I have not had a drink during this episode. I know you haven't. I don't think you have. This is all we got. Whether it's 50 years sobriety or 50 minutes, it's it's, it's still right here. Right. Um, but we do live in a world that we, we experience time as we travel through space. What is your plan to get day six or to push past that 10-day, 14-day threshold? Um, the, the one thing I... I need to, I'm I've committed to talking to my wife more when I, you know, the days that I have drank again, I've not told anyone. So I really need to commit to making that phone call. Um, that's the big one. I I'm trying to get into a, another routine. When I was sober for the five years, I had a nice routine. It wasn't like this stringent, you have to do all these things, but you know, just a few daily things, what, um, you know, instead of meditating for an hour in the morning, I'm just committing to three minutes just to get in that habit and start those habits back again. Um, you know, reading some type of, of literature uh, doesn't have to be the big book. It can be anything. There's so many resources now. So I just want to give myself a little bit of time in the morning to set myself. And I think that is a big, for me, that's going to help, um, you know, a lot. Um, I don't know when I'm going to go back to AA. I, I, I just don't know. I think I will. I, like I said, I'm, I'm a proponent of AA. There's things that make me hesitant right now to go back. I don't know why I have to, I have to find a way to get through that because there are good people and, and it does work, you know, if you allow it to. Andy, I know there's listeners right now saying, yeah, I'm on day seven, eight, nine, whatever day. This is tough. I'm thinking about going back to drinking. What do you have to say to them? just don't do it right now. <laughs> you know, just get through it the way I, and this is going to sound corny. Um, I know people have talked about like when their, their mind and when they have thoughts, pretend you're watching a river and you can get into the river or not type of thing. <laughs> it, my corny visual thing that I do, especially when I have those thoughts are, I think of like a, a waves on the ocean, like they're big waves, we can't do anything about them. They're coming. So for me, those weird thoughts, that thought like, ah, screw it. What's a, what's another day of drinking going to be or not? Is that wave coming? I allow that wave to wash up on the shore and it, it disappears and it goes back in, you know? So for me, it, that that's how I'm looking at those thoughts. Like I, I, I thought I wanted to drink this morning. I did. So I sat and thought about it for a little bit. Like I thought about that why I had that feeling. And I realized it was because I have nothing going on. I have an easy day today. And I thought about it. I talked to my wife. I said, yeah, felt like it. And and we didn't have a deep conversation about it, but just explaining that to myself and her that it was a thought and letting it pass versus fighting it and 
the opposite would be to, to, to be mad, like, oh my God, I'm having that thought. That means I'm an alcoholic. I'm going to drink again. Well, no, it's, it's just, it's a thought and it can come and it can go. Uh, I used to battle those thoughts a lot more in the past and that would cause me more angst and more reasons to want to drink. I think. Did you also look at your calendar and say, oh, I've got an interview on a sober podcast later. Did that help? That helped. It did help. (laughs) Yeah. That's a big reason I, I, you know, I've talked to you. I, you know, I, I need, I do want accountability and um, that's through friendship and, and, and talking to other sober people. So. Andy, you're in the ring right now, buddy. Great job. We we both are, but you're the one being interviewed right now with five days away from alcohol. That's absolutely incredible. I know this five days is going to give people with four, three, two, one, and zero the courage they need to log their first day. Yeah. Incredible stuff, Andy. We have reached the rapid fire round. We can answer each of these questions within 10 to 15 seconds. That would be great. Are you ready? Yes. All right, let's do it. What's your best sober moment? Uh, you know, spending time with with my little boy at this point, just just seeing the, the natural beauty he has. And if I hadn't gotten sober when I did uh, five years ago, I, he wouldn't be here. So it's just amazing to see him. Yeah, from your first drink of schnapps and crap weather on a camping trip up until this moment right now, regards to your AF journey, what's the one thing you've learned about yourself? I am a resilient person. Absolutely. What is your favorite alcohol-free drink? Hop water. Plain. What? All right. What's the point of life? Uh, Relationships, community, and love. What's your favorite, let's go 90s band. I know you graduated high school. I think you said 95 or 96. Mashing Pumpkins. Ooh, love it. Uh, what are some of your favorite sobriety resources, Andy? Uh, obviously, the the your podcast is a great one. And I mean, it's gotten me sober here. It's the reason I'm sober right now. I, there's, there's, um, I still do some literature. I, I read those, my daily reflection. I think that's a big one. That's one I've always done. Um, and the best resource that you can have is to find a person you trust that you can talk to on a daily basis if you need. Would that be your wife? Yeah. Yeah. For you? Yeah. That's yep. what it sounds like. What's your favorite pizza topping? Uh, anything but mushrooms. All right. And what parting piece of guidance can you give to listeners who are thinking about ditching the booze? Um, I would just, again, just, just try. And like I said earlier, the hold on to this moment, um, you know, everyone's has the, the, the first, the, the first minute, the first hour, uh, just, just let that happen and don't look too far ahead and don't worry too much about the past. And Andy, you know how these interviews end, give listeners your own. You might need to ditch the booze if line. You might need to ditch the booze. If you find yourself buying a case of O'Doul's bottles that are twist off and simultaneously buying a case of whatever alcoholic beer and dumping out all the old duels, refilling the old duels bottles with real beer, putting covers back on and putting them in the fridge and pretending you're drinking old duels all day when you're actually drinking real beer. Yeah, that one totally checks out, Andy. <laughs> you're on the right <laughs> podcast, brother. <laughs> Love it. Andy, you did fantastic. That was incredible. Uh, day five, or at least an hour in day five is in the book. Sober, great job. Let's get day six, seven, eight, nine, ten. 10, yada, yada, yada. Keep in touch. Hope to see you in some cafe area chats. You're the man. Thank you so much, Andy. Thanks, Paul. Appreciate it. I'm going to answer one more question quickly. This one's from Eric. He's in our cafe area group. He says, what's your favorite chats in cafe area to attend and why? Well, first off, it doesn't really matter what chat you attend, but I recommend the consistency. So I do attend the midday chat. It works with my schedule. It's a good break in the middle of the day of working. But again, the consistency is the most important thing. Keep going to the same meeting, whether it's an in-person AA meeting, a cafe, or e-chat, so you get to know the people. And you need to go to a meeting at least a couple times to get the feel for it. If this is with AA, I recommend you keep going to different meetings until you find one that you like. The vibration, the group consciousness is different with every single meeting. You might not find one that resonates with you, that vibrates well with you, until five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten meetings. Recovery elevator, we took the elevator down. We gotta take the stairs back up. I love you guys.